Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of I Was There Too is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Now look, it's no secret, Mac Weldon and I have been together since the beginning as podcast sponsor and podcast prime. That's why I'm proud to wear their socks, t-shirts, sweatsuits, tactical underwear, whatever it takes to get me through the night. And boy, do they, because they're soft, they're antimicrobial, and affordable. In addition to looking and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities so they work hard, too. Performance capabilities? These are the Meryl Streep's of underwears. If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. That's more than you'll get from Meryl Streep. I saw Mamma Mia, and I never got refunded. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your purchase using the promo code WASTHERE. Buying products like this helps support this show. And what's more, send me a screenshot proof of purchase that you got something from MacWeldon, and I will send you an underwear poem. Just email it to IWasThere2Pod at gmail.com. That's the I Was There 2 MacWeldon guarantee. Now, let's get to the show. And I was just kidding about Meryl Streep. She's America's greatest actress and always has been. Well, that's not the normal theme song to I Was There Too. What is it, you might ask? Well, it's a little gift here today for what kicks off a jumbo-sized episode of I Was There Too. My name is Matt Gorley, and this is the show where I talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. That live rendition of the theme song was sung by Sarah Watkins, Mark McConville, and myself, backed up by Jordan Katz and his incredible band, all for a wonderful show at Largo at the Coronet last month. It was put together to celebrate the book release of Join the Resistance, written by friends of the show Ben Blacker and Ben Acker, and included such luminaries as Weird Al Yankovic, Busy Phillips, Open Mike Eagle, Michael Giacchino. The best part is, you can hear that entire show. It'll be released to the public in both HD video and audio-only versions on May the 4th at thrillingadventurehour.com. The proceeds from those downloads will benefit public counsel. 
And now for today's episode and my guest who was present at that show as well, which you will hear in the first portion of this interview, which takes place at the live show. We did a little mini I Was There Too on stage, and then it will transition seamlessly, as you will witness, to an in-studio interview I did with him a couple of weeks later. He was nice enough to come talk to me twice, and his name is Ahmed Best, famous for playing Jar Jar Binks in the Star Wars prequel trilogy. The greatest guy, a terrific conversationalist, I really loved talking to him. Of course, we talk about Jar Jar Binks, but also the controversy surrounding Jar Jar Binks, some of the other work that he did throughout the Star Wars prequel trilogy that you might not even be aware of, and what he's up to now. This interview ended up being one of my favorites in a long time, so I hope you enjoy it as well. And please stay tuned after this interview for a preview of a new podcast project that I'm releasing this very day. It's called The Complete Man, and it's a spinoff of Amanda Lund's brilliant podcast miniseries, The Complete Woman, and her second follow-up miniseries, Complete Joy, which just recently came out as well. So start with those and then move on to Complete Man. But part of that decision is even made for you, because after this interview, you'll hear a short selection of it. Okay. Business be damned, let's get underway. Enjoy. The films, the Star Wars prequel trilogy, the years 1999, 2002, and 2005. The role, Jar Jar Binks, among other things. The actor, Ahmed Best. Well, I am very, very pleased to have this guest here tonight. This is more than an I was there, too. This is really an I was there. This is a major person in one of the movies that's uh, relevant to our interest tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, this is very exciting. Ahmed Best, Jar Jar Binks. How are you, Ahmed? Good. How are you? Hi, everyone. Please lower your expectations. <laughs> no, my first question is, who's your tailor? Um, you look great. Thank you. They said cocktail attire, and this is what I drink in, so. <laughs> Let's put this shit on. Uh, so not only Jar Jar Binks, you played multiple roles throughout the prequel trilogy, plus in the Clone Wars cartoon. Yeah. I want to get to the heart of where Jar Jar Binks ends up, because recently some information has come out. I want to, You're probably aware of this, I'm sure, but mm-hmm. in an upcoming novel, it is revealed that the fate of Jar Jar Binks is that he has stepped away from the Galactic Senate in trade negotiations and is now a street performer in the streets of Naboo. Yeah. How does this sit with you? A little bit true to life. <laughs> <laughs> How it feels, um, you know. I when I read it, I, I actually quite liked it. It was a, it was a very tragic and very sad ending for Jar Jar. I always had I always had a, a beef with the fact that I never got a good death, you know. So I, I, I would always like every time I saw George Lucas. That's, <laughs> I didn't mean to drop that like that. But I would see George, and I'd be like, come on, man, we have to tie this up somehow. So I kind of dug the fact that this, this novel kind of did that. Yeah, and it, he actually goes as far as to say, like, I've made some mistakes, and this is why this happened to yeah. me. So it's almost like yeah, a it's societal really, it's punishment. It's really tragic. It yeah, is a little really sad, sad, isn't it? Yeah, it's very sad. Yeah. Yeah, I like now, it. Good drama. Yeah. It's, it's the whole character arc and catharsis and that sort of thing. Yeah, nice. You also 
if I'm correct, played Yoda as the stand-in for at least Attack of the Clones, right? The physical yeah. body of Yoda on the set. Yeah, yeah. I was Yoda. Um, Frank Oz, who does Yoda, he wasn't available to, to do a couple of scenes while we were shooting clones. And um, I was standing there. And George was like, Ahmed will do it. And I was like, I'll do it? I guess. And I was like, I was every time somebody couldn't make it, I was the voice of that person. So there like was who a, else? There was a day where like four people didn't show up, and it was like four Wait, different what is this, creatures. Jury duty? Yeah, this is a Star Wars exactly. movie. Yeah. They all must have been a higher pay grade than me because I was there every day. But they would show up, and they were like, "All right, can you do that?" So there was one day. There, there's one scene where we're in uh, in clones. We're in um, Ian McDermott, uh, Senator Palpatine's office. Right, and there's a bunch of Jedi's there, and Yoda's there, and Yoda wasn't there, and I was there, so I had to play Yoda. And there was like a couple of other CG Jedi's that weren't there, so I was like me, Yoda, and like random CG Jedi's, just different voices, and like at the same time. And what was funny was like all the the extras who didn't know what was going on and didn't know where to look, because there was like a, there was like a little dot on the ground where Yoda was, uh-huh. and I was there and standing next to a bunch of people. And then it was just, you know, in the CG world, they just put, like, orbs and globes. And you have to make believe there are actually things that you talk to. So all the, all the extras were just kind of like, I would speak, and, and they would look at me. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, you have to look at the orb. And then we'd have to cut and do it again. And then I would speak again, like, no, you have to look at the dot. And, you know, the 80s would come out and be like, the dot's Yoda, the orbs are center of this person, Jedi's over here. So, like, orb, dot, dot, glow, okay? <laughs> was there ever any thought of you just hopping from place to place throughout this? I couldn't because I was Jar Jar. I was, like, I was in the whole Jar Jar thing, and I didn't want to fuck up ILM as much as I did anyway. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> if I was like, oh, no, now I'm Yoda. It would have been confusing. Well, to that point now, Jar Jar Binks is a heavily discussed and debated character, and it's almost 20 years now. What is really, your Really, I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. It's just been endless green lights for me since, <laughs> since 97. <laughs> no idea what you mean. <laughs> what is your perspective on it now? <laughs> well, um... It's it's interesting kind of being the guy, you know. I, I've had to take several steps back and look at it in a, in a macro kind of way, and, you know, the 20,000 foot and all the other fucking cliches. Um, but for me, it was really something that happened in film history and the fact that I could be a part of this pioneering not only technology but performance art that pretty much changed movies that was that's the big takeaway for me you know and I you know I didn't ride the line in the character so you either love them or hate them and as an actor that's my job just to do the job and make the character live so if you have a reaction to him then I did my job I'm glad you did <laughs> ladies and gentlemen Ahmed Best will be around for a little bit more here tonight Thank you, Ahmed. Can you hear yourself, Ahmed? Yeah, I can. Because it's me. Yeah, it's, can I get a little bit more me? Can, can, I, can I get a uh, more me in the cans? 
I want a little bit more me. Can I get a little more me? A little more me? <laughs> uh, all right. Bear with me on this. Okay. Continuing off what some of the stuff you said about Jar Jar's reception in history in our live show the other night. Yeah. I have a thought yeah. that with the vast expansion of the Star Wars films, Jar Jar could actually one day be in for some kind of resurgence or vindication or something. Now stay with me. Yeah. <laughs> Through a combination of like time, filmmakers who were young when the prequels were released and the unique challenge of reincorporating Jar Jar back into the universe. I could see some like hotshot director going, I got this. He's he's gruffer, he's older, he's got some wisdom to it. Yeah. Am I crazy? I'll be like the Qui-Gon Jinn of Gungans. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Well, it's kind of in the zeitgeist because there's the Jar Jar is the Sith Lord. Yeah, thing. the Darth Jar Jar. Yeah. And then the in the William Shakespeare's The Phantom Menace, Star Wars Part yeah. the First, uh-huh. j- listen to this little passage that Jar Jar has. These men have prejudice deep within their hearts. For looking upon me, they see savagery. A native, local, piteous buffoon with such dark slurs, they slander my whole race. Now, that's not the Jar Jar we know and love. That's a deep, reflective Jar Jar. Yeah, that sounds like my morning mantra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I could see this happening. Does that You know... A- um, there have been several people who have wanted to do the Jar Jar redemption resurrection in the in the Star Wars canon. And <clears throat> I think one of the, you know, like I said in the live uh, show the other night, one of the, the hardest parts about being Jar Jar was I didn't get a definitive ending. Right. You know, I was just kind of off in the ether. And when I came in and did Revenge of the Sith, um. George pretty much was just like, he's just a politician now. Just like, you know, just a guy who's in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that didn't really sit very comfortable with me as, you know, an actor who really cares about character arc and story, you right. know, that he just kind of disappears into this nothingness because he was so influential in creating what, you know, we now know as the empire. So I, I I always wanted a little bit more of a, a meteor kind of ending to Jar Jar uh, in, from George, you know, from his mind. Um, but I think, and, and this is one of the reasons why I think the Darth Jar Jar uh, fan theory came out was because I think the fans want it too. I agree. You know, I think everyone looks at Jar Jar and goes, wait a minute, there's got to be something more. Yeah, you don't want him relegated to the sidelines simply because of the fact that maybe Lucas didn't want to deal with it. You want it to be for a reason of some kind. Did you ever discuss that with him? No, I didn't. Um, It it was always a bit heartbreaking after, you know, Phantom Menace. Um, And I have to admit, like, the Jar Jar marketing thing was outrageous. Everybody was inundated with... Jar, I mean, there was Jar Jar toilet paper. There was Jar Jar, like, there was this one, like, uh, lollipop thing where, like... I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think I had it. Somebody bought it for me for my birthday or uh, something. And I would, you know, marketing guys would be like, oh, look, we got this cool, like, thing. Look at this. And I'd be like this. Oh, no. Because it was, kind of, like, sexual so, in a way. Yeah, because yeah. the lollipop would pop out of Jar Jar's mouth, That's like, right. because I had the... In the movie, like, Jar Jar has this very dexterous tongue, yeah. right? Which really worked in bars. <laughs> But this lollipop thing would pop out, and it was horrific, you know? I was like, oh, my God. To the point of where um, the marketing guys came to me um, when we were doing Attack of the Clones, and they were like, 
Sorry about that. <laughs> I did have Some that. Of that stuff. And I just want to say nice work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, God. But yeah, um, I, I think that there is this want from everyone out there who is a Star Wars fan to have some type of real honest closure to the character, you know? Because he's not like Orn Fritas, who you see like, you know, twice or three times in a movie and then goes away. Like Jar Jar had such a pivotal role in Phantom Medicine and Clones. Yeah, both in, in plot and just content and tone. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. it always did seem like a disservice, regardless of what people thought of the character, to yeah. just push him aside like that. And yeah. selfishly, I wanted to do more. Right. Did, you have know? you ever thought about what that arc could arrive at? Where would you put it? You know, to be honest, the Darth Jar Jar thing is probably the closest because um, there is a case for it. There's a, and I've talked about this before, but there's a scene that didn't make Revenge of the Sith where it's just me and Ian McDermott who plays uh, Palpatine. Mm-hmm. And he and I are talking about the Empire. And we're just walking down, uh, um, it was pretty much like a, a landing strip for one of the, the X-Wing fighters. Or it wasn't an X-Wing fighter. It was one of the fighters, the Republic of Fighters in Revenge of the Sith. And it's just he and I walking and talking about what's about to happen. And that scene didn't end up making the movie. And that was pretty much the only scene I was in that had dialogue in it, you know, and it got cut from the film. Um, And once again, a testament to the fans, like even though that scene wasn't in there, the, the feeling and the impetus behind the scene came about, like it erupted. And I think it's a very you know, very interesting idea that who was the the puppet master, like who was pulling and who was pushing, you know, between the two of them, between Palpatine and Jar Jar. What was discussed in that scene? Was it more of Palpatine kind of just passive aggressively trying to him get him to vote the way he wanted in the Senate? No, or? it was Palpatine admitting that he was the emperor pretty much. To Jar Jar? Yeah, to Jar Jar. Really? And thanking, if I remember it correctly, it's in the script, but um, he was like thanking Jar Jar for the boat, you know, <laughs> um, and really prefacing what was about to come next, mm. you know. So it was an interesting scene, and I liked it. Yeah. You know? I flew all the way to Australia to do it. <laughs> yeah. And then you, in Sith, though, you were also there for the funeral procession, right, of... I'm there for the funeral procession. I'm there for when um, I'm there for when somebody lands yeah. and then comes out. I'm there for like a quick moment. Yeah. Um, and then there was that one, that one scene. But that's it. I'm barely in Revenge of the Sith. Well, let's go back to the beginning. So you've just been cast in Phantom Menace. In those early days, what was it like to be in on the return of Star Wars? Like at the first table read or the first day on the set? What yeah. can you recall your feelings? It was it was exciting. Um it was exciting for a couple of reasons. You know, Star Wars was the first movie I had ever seen, A New Hope. So that's pretty much what got me into movies and why I, I loved movies. That was my first theatrical movie as yeah. well. I think we were exactly the same age. Yeah. And yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and it, it was impactful. You know, I had the pajamas and the curtains <laughs> yeah. and the pillows and you know, I was a, a fanatic. Um and I and I loved all the movies growing up. So I was never looking to be in any 
anything related to Star Wars. It was always like one of those things that I loved. Like the the possibility of me being in it was never in my mind right. at all, you know. So when I cast in it, um, it it didn't really feel real. <laughs> uh, even when I was doing all the like the the body casting for the costume and all the tests with ILM and stuff, I, it still just didn't seem real. It know? was it was like surreal, or you just felt like this could be taken away from me at any minute. I, I felt like I could be fired at any. Yeah, minute. that's what I would feel too. You know, because I didn't have what Natalie and Liam and Ewan had. Like, they had a body of work behind Uh them in the film industry, and this was my first movie. But you were pulled from the cast of Stomp, right? That's where Robin Gerland, the casting director, discovered you. Yeah, I I was doing Stomp in San Francisco, and she had been invited by someone in the cast who had done Stomp for Lucasfilm, like a private show, my Uh friend R.J. Sampson. And R.J. invited Robin to see Stomp, and the funny thing was, like, I was the lead of the show, but the night Robin was there, I had to play a role that I hadn't played in six months because one of the cast members got sick. And, you know, so they flew somebody out from New York and the guy they flew out from New York was from San Francisco and he had been doing the show longer than me. And he was like, well, tonight I'm going to lead the show. <laughs> You're going to play this other role. And I was upset about it. Right. And I was, I was a kid, you know, I was 23 years old, 22, 23 years old. And I was kind of an asshole. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was, um, that's the age. Yeah. yeah. I, I had, I, those were my arrogant days, you know, and especially being from New York city and this musician and, you know, I came from the street and now I'm in this Broadway show and, you know, the way Broadway handled things. I was like, nah, that's not me. So <laughs> I very reluctantly played this part that I hadn't played six months and I was doing the most outlandish, ridiculous things on stage, like stuff that now I'd be like, if I was in charge of a show and saw my, one of my, you know, employees doing that on stage, I'd have been like, "Get out! You're fired." But it connected in some way, right? With it was it was wild. Like, <laughs> you know, I was doing shit. I was I took off my shirt and I was like throwing it in the audience, <laughs> just like ridiculous shit. Um, and then RJ comes backstage after the show, and I'm pissed after the show because I had a great show, but I was still upset, you know. Um, and RJ comes after. Comes backstage, and he's like, um, "My friend Robin is here, and she's casting Star Wars." And I was like, "Oh man!" And at first, I thought I blew it for RJ because this was like his shot, uh, right? You know, and here I am acting a fool on stage, and I'm making everybody like look at me. You know what I mean? And I just completely destroyed RJ's, you know, chances. And he was like, she's going to call you later on. And I was like, why would she call me? Like, who the, like, especially after that ridiculous show, you know? And he was like, no, she's going to call you and, you know, take the phone call. So she called me in my apartment in San Fran. And I was like, I'm sorry about the show. (laughs) Um, Well, it's good. I called you for an apology. Right, exactly. You know? And I was like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. She was like, no, I want you to come up to Skywalker Ranch and put yourself on tape, I'm casting the new movie. So that automatically was like, what? So I go up to Skywalker, and in Robin's office, Robin had an office in the main house, like in the basement, and um, she didn't tell me anything Mm -hmm. 
I didn't have a script. I didn't have any idea what the character looked like. She was just like, all right, so if you were a character that would like crawl on the ground like a salamander, how would you move? And, you know, her office was really small. <laughs> yeah, it was probably about four feet across. And it was, you know, maybe 20 feet long. And it, there was a desk and books. and It was tight in there, you know. So in the office, I was doing all of these ridiculous moves, but I managed to, like, do a couple backflips in the area and, you know. So she was like, okay, cool. And she was shooting out. You remember those old Canon X1s yeah. that were, like, white? She shot it on one of those. And, and, and she was like, all right, great. Do you want to tour the house? And I was like, yeah, let's look around. So I did a tour of the ranch and then went back to my apartment. And I was like, look, if this is where it ends, I'm cool. Right. You know? This was fun. I got to see Skywalker. I, it's something I've always dreamed of going to. You know what I mean? So I was cool. Um, then I go back on the road, and I'm in uh, D.C. And I get a phone call. And it's Robin. She's like, we want you to come back. We'll fly you back out to San Francisco. We want you to do a test at ILM. I was like, what? Why? And you still have no idea. No clue what's going on. I'm like, why are why me? Like, what? What? And was there any of her hard feelings from RJ at this point? No. RJ was, you know, I, to this day, the reason why I still shout him out every time I tell this story is because if it wasn't for RJ inviting Robin, none of this shit would wow. have happened. Yeah. You know? And he has been, over the years, been awesome about this whole thing. You know what I mean? From day one, he was fantastic about it. Um, but you know, I get a couple of days off from the show. I fly out to ILM and that's where I meet Rob Coleman and, you know, all the animators and they put me in the mocap suit, which everybody knows what it is now, you yeah. know, it's like a bodysuit with all the ping pong balls and stuff like that. But this was like the first mocap suit ILM ever made. And I, I think that's correct. So they put me in the mocap suit when I was like, I don't know what's going on here. This is, <laughs> this is you know, a little bit revealing. I don't know if I want to wear this thing. And then they gave me these platform Converse All-Stars. And the, the platforms were like, you know, about eight inches off the ground. And I'm like, here I am in a bodysuit wearing platforms. I was like, what are y'all trying you're being to do to me? I'm like, what is yeah. going on here? Are you going to put me out on the street of San Francisco and try to make you some money? Like, what is this about? <laughs> So I'm in this thing and I'm standing around and I'm talking to the animators and I'm trying to get as much information as possible, right? And then George walks in and I didn't expect him to be there. I thought it was just going to be the animators right. and me, right? And then George walks in and he walks in all quiet, you know? And I was like, oh shit, this is fucking this George Lucas, you know? That's when like the performer in me kicked in and... Um, I was like, I'm getting this job. I don't give a shit. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna that, really bust my ass right now. It seemed like the moment it was a real prospect. Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, this is real. Yeah. And so I just everything he asked me to do, um, and they were writing motion capture software as I was doing <laughs> the audition, right? So they didn't know how this thing was gonna work or if it was gonna work, and this. Um, test was really the test to see if this thing could work, right? Um, it's so much more advanced now. But when I did it, it was just like computers the size of rooms. 
um, you know, those big like CRT screens uh-huh. and infrared cameras in the room. And the infrared cameras were tracking the ping pong balls as I was walking through the room and doing all sorts of stuff. And so George kind of put me through my paces. You know, I was doing a lot of action stuff. I was, you know, walking on two legs. I was walking on all fours. I was, you know, doing acrobatics. Like, you know, I, I, I had been, I'm a martial artist, so I've been doing martial arts all my life, you know, kung fu, karate, capoeira and stuff. So I was throwing all of those moves in with you know, his direction. And then he goes like this, okay, thanks. And he leaves. And I was like, shit, I blew it. You know, like maybe I was doing too much. That's a rave review from Lucas. Yeah. He was like, oh, okay, great. That was great. (laughs) And then leaves. And so I was like, ah, all right. Well, and then I thought the same thing. If this is where this ends, I'm cool. Right. I go back on the road and I'm in Philly. And that's when I get the call to the end of the movie. Wow. And what did they say? They just, Robin calls me and she's like, we'd like to offer you the part. And, I and was you're like, still like, what is the part? I was like, what <laughs> is it? And they were like, we can't tell you. You have to come to England and, and do the, the um, costume fitting and the casting for the bodysuit. You know, they put you in the mold and shit. Had they even fully developed visually what the character was at this point? Kind of. Kind of. It was almost there. Yeah. You know, I had seen a rendering that was... Close to Jar Jar, but green and no ears, mm-hmm. you know. And originally, were you the body and the voice or just the physicality, right? You kind of developed the voice on, yeah. as in the process. Is that right? The voice came a lot later. Um, I have been doing voiceovers and, and jingles and, you know, cartoon voices in New York uh, as at the same time I was doing Stomp. So, you know, Stomp was in the evening, but day gigs I would do like commercial jingles or mm-hmm. I'd do like voiceovers for products and stuff. So I did a bunch of different voices and I auditioned for the voice just like everybody else did. They had a whole list of people. Robin was auditioning for the voice and I was like, can I audition for the voice? And she was like, I didn't know you did voices. <laughs> and I was like, okay. She said, yes. So I gave her maybe like three or four choices. Do you remember what any of the other alternatives were like? Uh, you know, it's that was 20 years yeah, ago this year. Literally 20 years yeah, ago. it's 20 years ago. The movie is 18 years old, but you were working on it for two years. Yeah, 97 right? is yeah. when we started Principal. So, um, no, I don't remember, unfortunately, um, what any of the others were. I think I did a really low one, too. But um, the one that ended up happening was the one that George liked. Like, he picked it. Do you love books but find that you never have time to read them? With Audible, get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read on the go. Their app is free and works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows phones. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. With Audible, you own your own books, so you can access your books at any time and anywhere right from your smartphone. Audible also has the Great Listen Guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title, anytime, no questions asked. For instance, you could listen to the book very relevant to this episode's interests, Aftermath, Empire's End, and read yourself about the end trajectory of Jar Jar Binks' character arc, or more exciting Star Wars titles that I've heard great things about, like the Darth Plagueis book, or the book just on Tarkin alone, Grand Moff Tarkin. All you have to do to get a free trial 
is go to audible.com slash was there to start now. Audible. Enjoy a walk in the park and a twist in the plot. So you're, you're on set. You arrived. You've been cast. You've been cast and body casted. Yeah. What's a day like, let's say, like with the many hours where you're in the Gungan submarine with Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor just yeah. sitting there? What are you guys talking about between takes? What's the experience like? Well, I was cracking jokes. <laughs> that was a really fun day that day. Um, because, you know, the magic of Star Wars has a lot of practical elements to it, right? All the other stuff is pretty much just, you know, green screen, blue screen, you know, animation. So when we're sitting in the, in the submarine, <laughs> this the three of us in the submarine, and there are just two guys on the other side, you know, two uh, of, the, of the grips on each side of the submarine, and they're just shaking Shake it up. upside down. <laughs> like, it's really practical, you know? It's like poor man's process, filmmaking. Um, and so, <laughs> and then there's the first AD, uh, who is now a producer on Game of Thrones, actually. But, um, the first AD <laughs> was yelling at us, okay, and here comes a fish. All right. And then there's a bigger fish and the bigger fish eats the small fish. And we're supposed to be looking around like, oh, I'm reacting to all of these things. Right. They don't even before the scene kind of explain in more detail or is it really that just kind of i mean we had the script so we knew it was okay, was yeah. gonna happen and we get in and you know i'm in i'm in the front me and you and are in the front and then liam is like i'm like the big doofus in the back sitting back here <laughs> right <laughs> and there was a big thing about liam's hair and continuity and he was just like would everybody just leave the hair alone was he was he a little grumpy no no uh-uh. me and liam got along fantastic really yeah it was one of those, you know. That's nice to hear. We all did, like me, you, and and Liam and Natalie. Like we all were really tight doing it. And Liam and I had most of our scenes together in Phantom Menace, so we really forged a very strong friendship. Like he was wonderful. You know, I love that wonderful. that there's there's tension on screen between Jar Jar and Qui Gon, but uh, off screen they're just fast friends. Off screen, like one of the <laughs> in that submarine show shot, I'm I'm doing um, my. Shatner impression because we were all talking about Star Trek at the same time we talk, we're doing Star Wars. So I was doing a Shatner impression, uh, the Captain Kirk impression, and Ewan was doing Scotty. <laughs> so in between <laughs> takes, I was, you know, doing Kirk and he was doing Scotty, and Liam was just cracking out. I was just laughing <laughs> at the whole thing. And there were so many takes where and you'll see, you could see it in the movie where Liam is just like right on the verge of laughing and he's just really trying hard not to. And so I tried to make it a goal of mine every day to like get Liam to break. Because uh-huh. Liam had just come off of Les Mis, right? And Les Mis was very serious. Yeah, and, and this is before his big action yeah, renaissance. Exactly, this yeah. was before the Takens, you know. And he was, you know, very stern, very serious, and everybody was quite, quite intimidated by him, you know. Oscar Schindler for crying Yeah, out. exactly. Yeah. He had all of this gravitas. And so he shows up and he's doing this movie and, and he's, he's still in kind of Les Mis mode. And I think because I was just like this happy kid just to be there, you know what I mean? And I was taking every opportunity just to, to be happy and have fun. And, and I think that really broke Liam down and he was like 
cool <laughs> from there. You know? So I was like, I was trying to get as many jokes in as possible. And it really was Liam who gave me the green light to do that. Um, because I was apprehensive at first in the first few days of, of shooting because I didn't want to get fired, you know? Right. Like at the table read, we're all sitting around the table and there's Natalie and you and Liam and George and Rick McCallum and Jake. Jake had more movie experience than me, <laughs> you know? And I was sitting there like, what am I doing here? Like, I don't belong <laughs> here. Here are all these people who have this body of work and I'm just a kid from the Bronx, you know? So <laughs> I was really trying not to get fired. And it was a combination of you and N. Liam who broke me out of my, you know, my nervousness. Um, there was one scene, you know, there's one scene where we shot this very early on where we're on the platform about to fly back to Naboo and Jar Jar goes, we still going home, right? Yeah. I had a hard time doing that because... I I wasn't really feeling that line. And I had, we didn't really establish tone uh, when it came to Jar Jar. So I was like, you know, that seems kind of, this line is kind of corny. Like, I don't know if I, I'm, I don't know how to do this, right? And so um, Ewan comes over to me and he goes, what's going on? I'm like, what's wrong? And I said, this we should go on home line. It's like, I just don't know how to do it and he goes yeah you don't but Jar Jar does <laughs> and I was like got it I got it you and McGregor on set acting coach yeah. yeah and I was like I'm I'm dropping it right now all of that you know stuff I'm dropping it I'm just gonna do do my job do the line and yeah I do deserve to be here you know and then there was this other scene I wasn't like throwing in jokes yet I wasn't interjecting my point of view yet. And then there was this one scene, that first scene where um, I meet Qui-Gon in the forest. After I jump on him, we mm -hmm. fall down. And then we walk and, you know, I tell him about I owe him a life debt and all that stuff. And then there's, like, laser blasts that come in and I jump and hit the ground, right? The way it's written, I'm just supposed to duck, mm -hmm. Right? And I said to Liam, I was like, I want to do a little more than just duck. And he was like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to just jump straight up <laughs> and then dive into the ground. Like, so you just see my feet last in, in, in the frame. And he goes, George, Ahmed has an idea. I was like, whoa, ho, ho, wait a minute. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Oh, that would scare the He the just Jesus put me, me right, yeah. you know, on blast. Ahmed has an idea. And he goes, George is like, what's the idea? He's like, I kind of want to just jump straight up and, you know, like dive into the ground like I'm diving into a pool. And he's like, can you do that? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. And he goes, okay, let's try it. And then I do it, and it ends up making the movie, you know, making the scene. And Liam kind of looks at me like, don't be afraid, man. You're here to do a job. Do your job. Do what you're good at. You know, uh -huh. if you don't get those ideas out, you know, you don't know where the film could go, right. you know. So they were both just really huge influences on me as as far as, like, being able to handle the scope of something like Star Wars, you know. And speaking of contributing your own ideas, you not only played Jar Jar, but you played many other characters, including standing in for Yoda, but... 
If I'm not mistaken, you had quite a hand in Yoda's iconic lightsaber battle I with Count Dooku, right? Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, so it's no small thing. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I like I said, I was a huge Star Wars fan growing up, and I always loved Yoda, like much like everybody. And you know, I was a martial artist. And when I got Attack of the Clone script in Australia. You know, I get to the part where Yoda's supposed to fight, and I was incredibly excited. No one has ever seen Yoda do his thing, and now we get to see it, and I was really excited. And then I read it, and it it looked like George kind of just put a placeholder in there, you know? So I go up to Rob Coleman, who's the head of animation, and I ask Rob... I'm like, okay, so what's this Yoda fight going to look like? Like, how's it going to, you know, and I'm being a fan. Like, oh, man, Yoda's going to get the fight. And he's like, I have no idea how we're going to do this. And it's like the way it's written in the script, like nobody knows what's going to happen. And, you know, Rob was like a little bit, I wouldn't say nervous, but he was concerned, you know, because they hadn't got to that. And George kept putting it off, putting it off. All right. So I was like, well, can I make a suggestion? And he goes, yes, please. Uh, you know, that, and that was one of the greatest things about being on that set was regardless of who you were, everybody was open, you know. Like, I'm really nobody, but Rob is running this whole thing. Like, right. you know, if the Yoda fight doesn't work, it's him, you know. <laughs> so he was like, yeah. So I I brought him into my dressing room, and I and I have been a fan of Japanese anime since, you know, I was a kid. So I showed him um, Ninja Scroll. Uh, I showed him Akira, um, and I was sh- and I I pulled a bunch of Jet Li movies out. Mm-hmm. Like I had the, this was you know back in the VHS days, and I threw in like a couple tapes, and um, I was like, watch these movies. And we sat in my dressing room and watched them together, you know. Um, and then I was like, all right, we'll put this thing together. This thing is going to be dope. So <laughs> a couple days later, Rob comes over to my crib in, in Sydney. And I was like, all right, let's, let's do, you know, let's talk about this Yoda fight. And I would like, and my, my thing was Yoda should be the baddest Jedi to ever have touched a lightsaber. And, you know, my original idea was Yoda was so dope, he didn't even need a lightsaber, Uh right? But they needed a lightsaber fight. So I was like, you have to set this thing up that Yoda's about to be a badass. And I was like, the the one thing that you have to have Yoda do is hit that stance, like right before he starts fighting, you know? Drop the cane. Yeah, he drops the cane, hits the stance, you know? And then Dooku tries to, you know, throw the building on him. And I was like, Yoda stops that. And you can see this in the movie if you watch it again. Like, it kind of falls around Yoda. And, you know, my whole idea was Yoda's aura extends way beyond his size. Mm -hmm. So you get a really good scope of how much the force is with Yoda by how far those things fall away from him, you know? And then, um, so as I'm talking, like, Rob is kind of sketching Yoda stuff out and he's like should it look like this and I'm like yeah you know kind of like and I showed him a couple of Jet Li movies and you know like that Tai Chi Master movie and hit that stance and I was like yeah then it should move on 
And the original idea was Yoda was going, wasn't going to hold the lightsaber. This was my original idea. Yoda wasn't going to hold the lightsaber. He was going to be moving and flipping as the lightsaber was fighting Dooku. <sighs> right? So he didn't have to have his hands on the lightsaber. Like, the force was moving the lightsaber. Almost like attacking him from two fronts kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. So... He, Dooku would be swinging at Yoda, and Yoda would be flipping over the lightsaber, but the lightsaber would be coming in, flying in, parrying where Yoda was. I really like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but George wanted Yoda to hold the lightsaber. And so, you know, I wrote up the fight. I, I typed it up. I gave it to Rob, and I was like, there it is, man. I, I, um, I think that's what you should pitch to Rick and George. And then it was like, okay. I'm going to pitch it to him, pitch it to him. And I would ask Rob every day, did you pitch it to him? He's like, no, they didn't want to see me yet. But you've also gone from actor to just full-on consultant at this point. I mean, really, and developer in many ways. Well, you know, I wasn't really thinking about it. I wanted to see Yoda be great. Uh-huh. Like, as a fan, that's the fight I wanted to see. And, so- and I wasn't, I didn't really care. Like, everybody was like, how come you didn't get credit for that? And I was like, I don't care. I didn't care about getting credit. I cared about seeing a really good Yoda fight. Like that's what I wanted, and so Rob took it to Lucas. Rob finally got it in to to George and Rick, and they signed off on it, <laughs> and then they animated it, and it turned out to be what it is. But yeah, and then Rob <laughs> calls me, and he was like, "The Yoda fight, huh?" And I was like, "Yeah, man, that was great." <laughs> well, that he was, was like, the thing everybody talked about from yeah. Attack of the Clones. Yeah. yeah, I knew that was going to be the big moment. You know, that was going to be why everybody wanted to see that movie to see Yoda and like and as soon as he walks in with the cane you get that oh shit he's about to just destroy <laughs> Yoda's about to destroy you know <laughs> and that's the feeling that I wanted to feel you know when I watched it but Rob and and the animating animation team at ILM they just I mean they took the idea and made it magic yeah yeah I want to do a new segment on this show because I've been burned so many times with talking to people about things I've read on IMDb, and it's always wrong. Uh-huh. So this is called Confirm or Dispel Dubious IMDb Trivia. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> on his way to England to be fitted for the suit of Jar Jar Binks, Ahmet Best suffered severe burns when hot tea was spilled into his lap. Best endured great pain while a cast of his body was made but told no one about his injury, unwilling to take any chance that might jeopardize his role. That is true. Oh. How did you do that? How bad was it? <laughs> it was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> These are early days and you yeah, you just don't yeah. want to get fired. It was yeah. it was really bad. I saw I was on I was on the, the the flight and one of the flight attendants I asked for a hot tea and one of the flight attendants came by and she spilled the tea on my lap. Right. And it was like right on on the on the side of my on my right side, like right above my like hip bone. Right. Oof. And the tea was so hot, it burned my skin off. Like, I was I was scalded. And so, and my seat was completely wet. So I couldn't sit in the seat, and I was in pain. And, you know, flying, I was flying from, um, was I flying from California? No, I was flying from New York to to London. And, you know, this was like a half hour into the flight. Ugh. And that's like a four or five hour flight. So they gave me this thing called a, a burn bandage or burn shield or something, which supposedly had these chemicals that was 
supposed to stop the burning, and it didn't work. Like, I put this thing on, and it felt worse, like, the more I put this thing on. So <laughs> I ended up sitting on one of the flight attendants' jump seat for the next four and a half hours. And the only thing that was would, would soothe the burn was ice water and washcloths. So every maybe 15 seconds, I would dump a washcloth into this really cold ice water and put it on my burn. And then it would immediately start burning in 15 seconds again. So I was doing this for five hours. Just periodic numbing. Yeah, it was just, I, I, that was the only way I could tolerate the flight. And so I land, <laughs> land in London, and I'm severely burned. I'm in pain. I get to customs, and I couldn't get through customs because they asked me. This was just to do the body cast so they could make the costume. So I was in London for a day, right? And they were like, when you come to London, say you're here to visit friends. And I was like, all right, bet. Why? I have no idea. I, I don't think they had set up the office yet. Okay. So <laughs> I go to London. They were like, what are you here for? And I was like, I'm here to visit friends. And they were like, when do you leave? And I was like, tomorrow. <laughs> like, so you're here for one day to visit friends. And I said, yeah. So red flags go oh, up. No. Immediately they think I'm some kind of like drug mule or something, you know. And it's me and a bunch of people who don't speak English sitting in a room. And I'm still burning, Right. So it takes me about three hours to get into London. So it's like eight hours of being scalded. Ugh. I finally get through. Um, and then the driver meets me and I'm like, can we stop at a drugstore? Because, you know, I burned my hip and I need some kind of a anti-burn something. Right? So we stop at a drugstore, put the burn thing on. And then we do the body casting, which is like. Again, another very revealing skin-tight suit. They put baby oil all over you, and then they put, like, algae plaster all over your body. Straight on the wound? Until it heart right on it. They were just smacking it on it like they were kneading bread. Are they at all like, what happened here? Are you just... I was not saying anything. They are like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Just just, just get this done. Yeah. How (laughs) long were you in it? I was in the body cast for... And, you know, not long. It hardens in, like, maybe 10 minutes. Oh, thank God. But just, like, putting it on. And then the body cast gets hot, you know? And so they crack it off. And I'm hot and burned. And they crack the body cast off. And I'm like, I'm sweating. And they're like, you okay? And I was like, yeah. um, I kind of had an accident on a plane. You know, somebody spilled hot tea. And I'm, I'm, you know, I burned my head. They were like, oh, my God. Why didn't you say anything? How come you didn't tell us? Huh? I was like, I don't want to get fired. <laughs> I just felt like, you know, just push through it. It'll be cool. Oh, God. Yeah. All right. Number two. According to Ahmet Best in a Rolling Stone article, Michael Jackson campaigned for the role of Jar Jar Binks, but George Lucas decided against casting him because his star status would, com- quote, compromise the film. At one point, Lucas took Best and Natalie Portman backstage at a concert and introduced Best to Jackson to gain the singer's approval. Yes. Really? Yeah, that was a weird day. I've heard this rumor before about Jackson, but all right, go ahead. Well, so we go to the Michael Jackson concert at Wembley, and it's me, Natalie, George's kids, and George. And we're sitting in the prince's box, right, the the royal box in Wembley Arena. And I'm probably a bigger Michael Jackson fan than I am a Star Wars fan. Okay. 
You know, yeah. I grew up with Michael Jackson and the Jackson Five, and then you know doing all the moves, the moonwalk, all the shit. So going to this concert was a big deal for me. You know, so I'm freaking out. Me and Natalie are just bananas because we're both huge Michael Jackson fans. So this dude comes out of nowhere in the Prince's box, right? And he goes, "Follow me." <laughs> so George is like, "All right, come on, guys." And there's a secret passageway behind the Royal Box in Wembley that takes you backstage. Good to know. Right? So we're walking through these, like, very small, this very small stairway, and we end up backstage at the Michael Jackson concert. And it's exactly what you'd imagine. There are people passed out on gurneys from, like, oh, Jesus Christ, Michael Jackson. And they're all, like, in a row, just, you know, suffering from dehydration and love of Michael Jackson. And then we go even further backstage, and there's Catherine, his mom, and she's, like, coordinating stuff. And then, you know, the creepy guy who pulls us downstairs points to this curtained-off <laughs> area, and Michael's in the curtain, and he goes, go in there. Like, Michael wants to say, what's up? So we go in, and Michael puts his hand out. I shake his hand. And George comes in and shakes his hand. He doesn't speak, Michael, right? And so we're like, all right, we'll see you, like, later or he after the show. He doesn't say, say a word. word. He's just looking at He's you. He's like, puts his hand out. Oh, so Michael runs back on stage, and we're backstage, like, watching the last two numbers that he's doing, right? And, you know, I think Wembley Arena is, like, 80,000 people. And Michael Jackson's not a big dude. He's, like, 5'10", maybe. He, real, he was kind of skinny. But he had 80,000 people in the palm of his hand, and I was just watching him just control the stadium. It was phenomenal, right? So, you know, his last song is Heal the World, and there's, like, 30 kids that come out they sing Heal the World with him, right? And then Michael disappears at the end into a trap door and is gone. And I was like, well, that was great. You know, let's go get a drink. If it ends here, I'm cool. If it ends here, I'm good. You know, I shook Michael's hand, right? Creepy guy comes back. Michael wants to see you, right? <laughs> So we walk outside. Fascinated by this creepy guy. Yeah, he's, I don't know who he was. He was just like, and he just appears out of nowhere, you know? He's like, Michael wants to see you. And so we walk down, and there's um, just a fleet of Toyota minivans, right? And so me, George, Natalie, George's kids, we're all standing. And then the door opens, and Michael steps out of this minivan. And in the minivan is like 15 kids and Lisa Marie Presley, right? So it was this when he was married to her? This was after, after he was married. Sure. After. So <laughs> Lisa Marie's in the truck. And I look at Natalie like, oh, snap, Lisa Marie's in the truck, right? And so I look at Lisa Marie and Lisa Marie kind of gives me the what's up now. <laughs> and I was like, is Lisa Marie like, is she trying to get some right now? Like, is she giving me the what's up, right? So I give her the what's up. But I don't want Michael to see me giving Lisa Marie the what's up. <laughs> you know? So Lisa Marie's like, what up? And I'm like, what's up, Lisa? Like, where are we going with this shit? All right? Michael comes out. He has the captain's jacket on. He has the surgical mask. And he's wearing the fedora. Right? And he's like, oh, yeah, guys, thanks for coming to my show. I really appreciate it. And George is like, oh, man. And we're like, I don't even know if I'm saying words. I'm just like, hey, blah, 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 blah. You know, this is verse, verse. And so... <laughs> George is like, remember my kids? He introduces his kids. And Michael's like, yeah, remember I used to play with you guys as babies? Blah, 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 blah. All right. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, this is Natalie. 
in that. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know, Natalie, nice to meet you. And then he goes, and this is Ahmed, also known as Jar Jar. And then Michael goes like this, oh. Uh. And all the air gets sucked out of the atmosphere, right? And I was like, uh, <laughs> that's weird, right? So did you know at this point that he had been campaigning for this? No idea. Okay. Oh, and then Michael goes, oh, okay, well, I'm staying, blah, 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 George, if you want to meet up and such and such and blah, you know, and George was like, yeah, yeah, I'll call you. He jumps in the minivan full of children and Lisa Marie and drives away. And um, and then we go, okay, let's go. There was an after party going on. And I was like, okay, let's go get a drink. So we go to the bar and that O was sticking with me. What was that about? That was so weird, you know? And why introduce me as Jar Jar? And I was like, you know, so I go, George, I got to ask you a question. Like, what was that about? Like, with you and Michael, like, that was weird. And he was like, well, Michael wanted to play Jar Jar. And I froze. And I was like, well, why did, why not? Like, why didn't you do that? And he was like, well, Two reasons. Michael wanted to do it with prosthetics. Like, he wanted to do the full-on thriller shit with the makeup and the da-da-da. And George was like, I don't want to do that. I wanted to try this, you know, CGI thing, you know, because I think the CGI thing is going to be a big deal. So I want to see if that works. And he said, also, you know, the movie would be about Michael Jackson. It won't be about the story. And I want the movies to be about the story and not about Michael Jackson. And I was like, what? You mean I beat Michael Jackson out for a job? He's like, yeah. And for his lady, it seems. Yeah, right? See, you, that, ever, you ever talk to her? That's again? a regret. I should have jumped in on Lisa Marie. I mean, that that's is a regret. pop royalty on both sides. There. Yeah, no, it was weird, right? The king of pop and the king of rock and roll. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know, right? I could kick myself for not getting Lisa Marie's digits. <laughs> it's never too late. She's probably, she don't remember me. Well, Tell us where people can find you, what you're up to now, anything you're working on. Um, what am I up to now? I'm doing a bunch of things. Um, I'm doing a lot of writing and directing and executive producing. I am starting a podcast of my own oh. uh, called The Afrofuturist, and it talks about how to democratize the future. I'm big into the future and science fiction and science and um, there isn't a lot of people who are talking about the future when it, as it relates to black and brown people. So I have a bunch of futurists on the show and uh, as well as celebrities and friends. And, you know, we all talk about what's going to happen and how soon are we away from the singularity and artificial intelligence and all of that cool stuff and a lot of Star Wars and Star Trek stuff. When uh, will that be out? Uh, we start recording next week. So, you know. We don't know when we're going to release it yet. We're going to do a batch of them and then try to release them somewhere uh, doing something. That's great. So, you know, keep an ear out for the Afrofuturist. That's going to be my my next show. Um, I have a talk show, a dinner talk show called Dinner at Lola, which you should be able to find in a bunch of different places very soon. And it's uh, pretty much a dinner show. Seth MacFarlane is on the show. Seth Green is on the show. Cheo uh, Coker, who uh, did Luke Cage, Doug Petrie, who did uh, Daredevil. And we all sit around and talk about the artistic process and how they get their inspiration and, and where it comes from and stuff. And 
I'm also doing a live sketch comedy show, um, morning show in the next, uh, in the coming months. And me and my friend Jordan Black, who does this show called The Black Version. Yeah. Around They've been our, in here quite a bit for Spontaneation and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, I had um, Phil Lamar on the yeah. show as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Jordan and Gary Anthony Williams, Phil Lamar. We're um, starting a morning show that is really uh, improv and sketch comedy based. Wow. Um, and it's called Your Big Day. And it'll be on once a week for a month or two months in the summer, summertime. And we're probably going to do it on Facebook Live or something like that or YouTube Live. These three projects sound fantastic. Yeah. You know, I try to keep myself busy um, in between, you know, finding work and acting and stuff. But, you know, after I got out of film school, I really felt like making things was where I needed to be. And I have access to so many great people and there's so much talent around. And and I find myself always saying like, what are we doing? And everybody goes, nothing, <laughs> you yeah, know? Right. And I'm like, well, why don't we do something? Why don't we do, why don't we put some stuff together, you know? And so that's what we're doing. That's great. Thank mm-hmm. you for talking with me, Ahmed. Of it course. Fantastic. Yeah, man. My pleasure. My pleasure. My enormous thanks to Ahmed Best for making that happen twice I got to talk to him and to Ben Blacker for connecting us as well. You can find out more about I Was There Too at I Was There Too on Twitter or at Matt Gorley on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And if you get a chance, please write a review on iTunes. That helps keep this show alive and well on all the iTunes countdowns and lists. And now, please stick around for just a little bit, as promised, a preview of the brand new show from Stitcher Premium slash Howl FM that is the complete man made by yours truly but spun off of the great and really amazing series created by Amanda Lund called The Complete Woman, and it also has a second series itself called The Complete Joy, but it's all about how to live your life as a woman, in the 60s, and the social climate that comes along with it. This is my spin-off series about being a man in that time. And it has so many wonderful guests, including Amanda Lund herself, but also including, and not limited to, Paul F. Tompkins, Andy Daly, Maria Blasucci, Jeremy Carter, Mark McConville's all over this thing, Chris Tallman, Jeff Davis, James Bladen, Craig Anstett, Rebecca Delgado-Smith, Mary Grill, so many wonderful people, and if you're a listener to Super Ego, you might even hear some um, old favorites on there as well. So check it out on Howl.fm and Stitcher Premium. And if you haven't, don't even begin here. Go check out The Complete Woman and Complete Joy in that very same place. So we'll go out with this, a clip from The Complete Man. I hope you enjoy. Chapter 1, Golf. For a real man in today's ragtag world, there's no sport more rewarding and yet somehow more frustrating than the old duffer's lament. Golf. Why, just last week I shot six holes in one on the front nine only to follow it up with eight septuple bogeys on the back nine. And don't even get me started on the side nine. But my bottom nine was pretty good. And for my top nine, Perry Como comes in at number one with Milkman at the back door. My point is, we're all just searching for a little consistency in our putts and a little dependability in our butts. Now, I don't normally curse like that, but you must understand, that's precisely what the game of golf can do to a fellow. 
Why, I've seen a top man, a pillar of society, mind you, reduced to an emotional rubble simply by slicing his Schlesinger 7 into the tufty rough. My hand to God, just six moons ago, my cousin Abner had a bad lie on the course and promptly walked into the wilderness, only to return the next day bleeding from his eyes and dressed in a gown made of willow thatch. Forget the grand and ethical war in Vietnam. The game of golf is what can truly destroy a man's soul. So then why do we play it? Well, I'll tell you why, Karen. And it's perhaps something only a grown man can understand. It's because we men feel, at some time in our lives, that we must enter what the author Joseph Conrad called the heart of darkness. And I'll tell you what, he had that much right. But what he didn't have quite right was the sport. Don't misunderstand me. A good Congolese river conflict is fine fun. I prefer a classic Boer War myself, but it's nothing compared to the feeling you get when driving a divot so deep as to give a Chinaman a flat top. Golf. Now, to aid you in your quest, I've asked the resident golf professional from the very exclusive Whitest Pines Country Club, Russ Tenderson, to give you a complimentary lesson. Got your clubs? Pocket full of balls? Snug in your knickers and becleated shoes? <laughs> Good. Let's begin. Hello, Russ Tenderson, Whitest Pines. So you want to learn to play golf. That's no problem. I've been teaching people how to play golf for a long time, uh, beginners and experienced people who just want to brush up, and I'm pretty good at giving advice. Golf was invented by the Scots. Uh, they can't play it for anything these days. I've had a fellow come out, came straight out of Scotland. I said, well, let's see how it's played in Scotland. This guy was a mess, literally crumpled up crying in the sand pit. And I just thought, well, obviously you, you invented it. We perfected it. Anyhow, first thing you're going to need if you want to play golf is a golf ball, and you're going to need a bag of clubs. Now, if you're a first-timer, chances are you're just going to use one or two clubs. You're going to use a real smack it club. That's going to be like a one iron, and then you're going to use your putter when you get up real close and that uh you, you basically just boil it down. i'll tell you what i'll listen i'm gonna be totally honest with you i don't know a lot about the different clubs and things like that and what they do because i've got a caddy for that and i you know caddy drives the cart and i mostly just sit there and i have a, a bunch of gin and tonics i go out there with a pitcher of gin and tonics and uh and mostly a whole exercise for me is trying to keep my ice cold and that's because if once you by the time you don't have any ice anymore and it's just you and a warm pitcher of gin and tonics, it's time to bring it into the clubhouse. But anyway, I get out there, and it's me and my caddy, and this is a guy named Charles, and he's been caddying for me for, for God, it's got to be 15 years by now. I get the feeling he'd love to move on and do something else with his life. He's got a family to support, and, you know, I don't pay him hardly but anything, and, you know. Yeah, it's kind of a sad story because he comes to me every once in a while. He says, I need another job here. You know, you got to hook me up with something in the kitchen. I mean, the guys in the kitchen get paid more than Charles. And I just, to be honest with you, by the time he brings it up, I'm usually half into the bag and I browbeat him. And uh, he's just been with me 15 years. Anyway, so what I say is, you know, uh, Charles, hand me the ball and put the little woody thing on it. You know, there's a little woody thing that you put in the ground and your ball goes on that and just smack the hell out of it with a, uh, what I believe to be a one iron. And uh, then Charles finds it, finds a ball for me. Sometimes if it's in an inconvenient place, if it has a bad lie or whatnot, I'll, I'll quite honestly, I'll make it out like it was Charles's fault because he handed me the club and then he'll put, it's his job to put it someplace good. Anyway, come on out to Whitest Pines, and uh, as long as you qualify culturally and just in terms of being uh, the right kind of person, we'll set you up with a caddy who's, uh, you know, like Charles, somebody who's uh, used to taking abuse, and, and uh, we'll get it in the hole. 
Hey, this is Hillary Frank. I host the Longest Shortest Time podcast. Tune in next week for a very special interview with comedian Rob Hubel. We will talk about his wife. Oh boy, Hillary, don't make me start crying. Becoming a dad. Hold on, I gotta pour. I gotta pour myself some water so I don't cry on your podcast. And bringing his daughter home. I gotta take a sip of this water, which I wish was vodka, but it's water. To keep myself from crying like a big crybaby. Rob Hubel, like you have never heard him before. Next week on The Longest Shortest Time. Fuck you, Hillary. (laughs) Fuck you. Just doing my job. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Oh, donde sea. Spanish Aki Presents. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.